This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID, the smart choice for MDL implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant and UL certified for all transaction modes. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Now celebrating our 90th anniversary. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, this week, I'm excited to have a couple of guests to talk about one of Anva's newest products, one of our newest best practices, specifically the best practice for the use of specialty use license plates. And to join me, Kevin Kin from Colorado, who is part of the working group, and our director of vehicle programs, Paul Steyer. Paul, welcome back. And Thank Kevin, you. welcome to your first appearance on the Amphicast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So let me start. Did I get the title right? Yeah, I think you did. I think you did. I think we call it specific use. Specific use. Yes. Okay, so let's go with specific use license plates. And let's start with, let's start with, yeah, let's define that. What is, what does that mean? Everyone know what a license plate is? What do we mean by a specific use license plate? You want to take that, Ken? Sure. So uh, specific use license plates, most people are f- mostly familiar with the dealer uh, license plates. So uh, dealers, you know, in I believe all jurisdictions are not required to register their inventory, right? Because they're in the process of selling. So they request from the jurisdiction a plate that uh, can be attached to the vehicle for either demonstration purposes or, or say, a full use purpose. Uh, the jurisdictions have differing um, requirements uh, for those plates. And, and there's a number of uh, other specific use plates like tr- transporter, depot, manufacturer, uh, Bailey, um, construction, agriculture. Yeah, the, the list goes on um, across, across the jurisdiction. They're just not assigned to a specific vehicle. I guess that's the theme, right? That's is the, the difference here is where in our in traditional license plate business, if you will, the plate goes with the vehicle. It's tied to the vehicle, it's tied to the VIN of that vehicle, it all comes together on the back end, the registration, all connected to the license plate. Whereas here, it's a license plate that may look like any other license plate, may or may not be marked. We'll get into that in a moment. But from the jurisdiction, it's not assigned to a vehicle. Right. That's correct. So what is it assigned to? Usually assigned to a business. It could be assigned to a person who's puts typically a business associated with it. Car dealership, uh, farm implement company, transporting company. So it's assigned to a business, but the business is responsible for deciding actually what vehicle the plate will go on. And so that business may have 60 plates, 600 plates, depending on the scale there. And all all the agency knows is all of these plate numbers belongs to this dealership, belongs to this construction company. I don't know what vehicles they're putting in. That's correct. And it's been that way, Ian, for a long, long time. And so if it's been that way for a long, long time, what's been the challenge, the more recent challenge that made the vehicle committee and the board and the members say, we need a little help with this one. I think the constant voices we hear from law enforcement, uh, from, you know, the misuse of the plates, the fraudulent use of the plates, people that are suspended, barred, denied, revoked, they can't get a license. So they'll go work for somebody or steal or borrow one of these plates. And law enforcement is really struggles. And they've, you know, they've asked us, please help us refine these requirements because, you know, people are, Kevin's from Colorado. Somebody has a Colorado dealer plate and they're in California. Well, how does the officer in California know 
what the requirements are for the use of that plate and mm -hmm. it just becomes very difficult and of course unfortunately the criminal element knows that that the odds of being caught using one of these plates very slim yeah and you know we came across a couple case studies where um, you know transporter plates you know from Washington are in New York for extended periods of time so it's not like they're you're just taking the vehicle and transporting it to Washington mm -hmm. the plate is issued by the jurisdiction of Washington however the vehicle remains in New York and is being used say as a personal vehicle or for you know some unfortunate uh, some nefarious purposes yes, exactly. but in that example for those that don't understand what a transporter plate is why, why don't we you know explain that in that in that use case that what should that plate being used for so when you think about it, you're transporting a maybe a trailer you're transporting it from your jurisdiction to somewhere else the idea that's what you're, you're transporting you're delivering this this trailer this unit for that purpose and then going to come back with so it's it. a, should be a short-term short use term to get use. that vehicle from point a to point that's b right. that's right and then it would go back to that company because they're going to use it to transport another vehicle that's right that's yeah. the whole idea behind it that's right so as you started to scan it you mentioned you know one of the areas to help with the fraudulent use was to better refine the re requirements at the start of the issuance process yep as you start to do the scan, I would imagine, as we often do with these topics, everyone's all over the place <laughs> and not a lot of consistency between what Colorado does versus California versus New York versus West Virginia, et cetera, et cetera. True? Absolutely. True. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, throughout uh, the document, we have come up with 90 best practices. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you can't implement probably all 90 of them. So, sure. you know, we, we recommend certain things as far as the, the eligibility um, business verification, you know, making sure that the business is physically located in your jurisdiction and it's not someone outside of the state trying to use, you know, plates issued uh, f for other purposes or to get out of, you know, registering in their state. Colorado is a very expensive state to register your vehicles in. However, our uh, specific use license plates can be very inexpensive, um, you know, $30 for your first plate and then $5 per per additional plate say for a, a transporter plate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so as you start to go through these uh re requirements uh, for issuance so one best practice is verifying that it's in in the jurisdiction um do we go so far as say how they may want to do that what requirements they they want to look for to, to prove it absolutely because uh you know do you you physically actually should you physically go out and go on site and see that they actually exist should you you know, look at other uh, activities that that business has done to validate that they are a legitimate business, maybe zoning requirements as well. Uh, and then is there actually a formal licensing requirement? Because many jurisdictions, you know, you need to be a licensed dealer. So there's requirements for, you know, zoning properly, you have to have a surety bond and, and uh, those. So there's more ways to validate that it's just not a ghost, but it's actually a legitimate business that you can actually see and touch and and see a presence of okay so that's almost it sounds like that's almost the initial gateway someone's coming right. for an application before i even look at the application are you are you even here and so where, where do they go from there are there have is there a you know type of companies that might be more legitimate to have these plates than other types of companies that maybe are on the fringes outside of the physical presence right being able to verify that it's a legitimate entity right i could prove that i'm 
in your jurisdiction. Yep, I think part but of it, maybe I don't qualify for the plate. I think I qualify for. Well, exactly. Then you also have the employees that are going to use these plates. So one of the some of the recommendations you'll talk about is background checks on the employees, making sure they're legitimate. You know, employees that are that are not uh, people who shouldn't be driving because they're not they're suspended or barred, revoked. Um, but you're also looking for uh, the fact that um, you know what's you know, do you have a legitimate reason? And then the volume, that's, that's uh, we're all over the board across the nation on the volume across throughout North America on, on how you determine does, does Ian's business get one plate, 10 plates, 100 plates? And so we have several recommendations that, that address ways to, you know, fairly provide plates to, to this particular business based on their need. Uh, and a, a lot of it comes down to, you know, the volume. So is it, do we have guidance on how a jurisdiction might assess what is the appropriate yep, volume? Absolutely we do. So, you know, looking at the number of vehicles, for example, a dealer, their, their yep. volume of sales is a great example, or number of employees. You know, if they've got three employees and they're requesting 100 dealer plates, you know, uh, that should raise a flag, right? Because theoretically, the dealer plate should only be used when you're going out for a test drive or moving the vehicle somewhere, right? It's not and, supposed to be a each, permanent fixture for the dealer just to drive the vehicle. Well, around. and Kevin could talk about Colorado, how yeah. they have different types of dealer plates that have different permissions, which adds a whole level of complexity uh, for law enforcement. Okay. Yeah, exactly. We have a dealer full use, so the, the dealer and or their immediate family are eligible for a dealer full use plate. So typically they're driving their own inventory around and you know the the partner of the uh, dealer may be using it you know as as the everyday grocery getter um and and you know taking kids to school and and they have a dealer plate and that's allowed in colorado with a dealer full use a dealer demo is only supposed to be used for demonstration purposes uh so th there is a difference the cost of the dealer full use is is uh, the average of our model years across seven years. So it's more expensive than a dealer demo that is really gonna be used during um, demonstration hours, right? Business hours. So it should be used when you are actually trying to sell a vehicle. What's the practical purpose of a dealer full use? If they're actually just using a vehicle for everyday life, why wouldn't they just have a regular plate on that vehicle if it's their everyday vehicle? Typically what you see with dealers is that they're they're changing vehicles right they're they're testing their own inventory they're getting a new model in you know they, they go through several uh they're different models in a year. To get attention get customers right to come they're, in they're promoting they the business right by by driving the newest you know sleekest okay. model and it's and it's a benefit right of being a licensed dealer there's some benefits and perks and that's over the years the legislators have granted some of those benefits yeah. being able to use it to take your family on vacation yeah. And is there, so there's the best practice then, even though obviously our primary audience is the issuing agency and the vetting of it, uh, do we go so far to say once it's issued, how an agency can expect somebody to be using those plates? So, okay, we've now given the dealer these plates. These are our expectations of how the dealer is going to manage those plates. So education of those, you know, educating the dealer, but also making sure the dealer educates the staff that are going to use those plates. So that's something we really stress is to make sure that the staff that are using it are fully aware of it. We even provide examples of how a dealer, for example, or a transporter could give a particular document to one of their employees that basically signs off that they understand what the permitted use is of this plate, because there's some, some jurisdictions that do require that. Yeah. And so there's examples of how they can hold them accountable. Uh, so that way, you know, because it's all about preventative uh, action. So if you can prevent 
problems from happening, you know, hopefully you can educate those salespeople, transporters, so they don't misuse them. And that's, that's our ideal goal is to prevent those problems. Yeah, and with, with that as well, as, as far as the education piece, you know, and going out to the dealer associations, if you have them in your jurisdiction, in person is a, is a good idea. Uh, it's just we have in there record keeping. We, the dealer should know what plates they have or the transporter or the manufacturer mm -hmm. should have a list of plates that they have and they should know who's using the plate. And if that employee, you know, is no longer with the company, the plate needs to be returned to the to the business as you know that's the owner of the plate it, it, it if they're lost or stolen they should be reporting that to the MVA to cancel the plate and we recommend that you don't reissue that same number plate uh, out, out to the entity to create a duplicate and we also talk Ian, about auditing you know annual basis our jurisdictions to audit the plates. so you know go to the dealership you were given a hundred plates let's see where the hundred plates are if they're not there, if you say they're missing, then show us that you filed a police report. If you haven't, then guess what? Today you're going to file a police report. So there, it's, a, it's that accountability piece. And so we're, we're giving a lot of attention to the dealer plates and dealers. Is that, are we giving it a disproportional amount of attention? Or when we talk about specific use case, it is the bulk of the inventory that's in that category? It probably, I think, Kevin, would you agree that dealer plates are probably the most common plates that are issued by jurisdictions? Yeah, um, uh, we, we surveyed all the, the jurisdictions, yeah, yeah. and we got a lot of, um, that, that probably hit the most, right? Yeah. Is Yes, everyone, I think, issues a dealer plate from all the responses that we got. Um, you know, some people, like Colorado, will issue a depot plate, which is really, you have a plate, you know, that where you're taking a vehicle from the, the train yard, uh, actually unloading it from that trainer you're, you're taking it to the dealership now they're not putting a, so a, a dealer plate, plate just on for, just for that moment of getting it from the, the train to the dealership has its own plate versus the plate it's going to get at the dealership correct so okay. you wouldn't use that as a as a demo plate um, that is just a depot plate it, it's just for that that transportation piece and then a manufacturer plate for Colorado we have you know high altitude so a lot of manufacturers like to test the vehicle in in Colorado so they don't want to come out and pay the registration fees for an entire year okay uh, full fees right sure so so we do verify you know that you know it's Toyota or whomever coming out uh, or on that application and that they're just going to be testing in high altitude and that's what they're using that plate for gotcha. as a manufacturer so what's the Talk to me about the value then of if the theme is still it's not attached to a single vehicle it's a an entity to use as they need to. What's the additional use and value of these subcategories? Right, so if the, the difference between traditional plate and a plate that is specific use, the value of it being a dealer plate versus a manufacturer plate versus a transporter plate versus a depot plate, when, it, when the theme is still, well, it's a company that's using the vehicles for whatever they've been approved to use it for. What's the, is it, is it a law enforcement value? Is it a other travel value? What's, tell me the, what drives that business rule? Well, that, and Ian, you asked that question. That was actually a response from some, because we actually surveyed dealers uh, as well, those that actually have the specific plates. And that was one of the responses from a few folks was, just give us the one plate. Don't make it so complicated that we have mm -hmm. multiple plates. Right. But, but I think, Kevin, you might agree to this. I think it's over time it's evolved where other groups have come and said, well, we'd like to have those same privileges and benefits. So instead of saying 
well, the dealer plate doesn't really sound right for what you're doing in the agricultural field, so we better name it something different. And I think some of that falls onto the accountability of the plate as well. So okay. it, for our transported plate, we require a repair shop to there's multiple ways they can apply and and get the plate but one of the options is to have a, a written contract with a dealer that they're involved in the repair or or maintenance for that dealer and then that dealership doesn't want to take responsibility for the repair shop employees mm -hmm. you know having that plate so those entities i guess get separated as far as that accountability piece okay. goes and then if you know if uh law enforcement sees uh you know, a, a transporter plate, you know, outside of the jurisdiction um, or, a, or a depot plate or one of the subcategories of plates. Being um, used in a way it shouldn't be used, it's a... It's a right, or do, they, or do they even know? And that kind of goes into our education piece yeah. and or resources. Uh, in Colorado, our website has all of our, you know, specific use plates under other plates. So it can be used as a reference and it's all listed in there. What, what the uses uh, are and what's yeah. allowed. And then of course we have our, our, our call centers as well. Yeah. But if, you know, I'm in Kansas and, and you know, I have, have uh, you know, a depot plate and a Kansas trooper pulls me over, odds are he doesn't know what a Colorado depot plate is. Right. So is there a resource for them to go? And that's one of the recommendations is that, you know, that we, you either have an updated website uh, th that's easily accessible so they can t determine that and then um, kind of going on a tangent, but we also get into, you know, what the prosecutor should know, you know, how should they be educated <coughs> when law enforcement does issue a citation, you know, does the prosecutor understand what yeah. was wrong with the, the use of the plate or, or you know, they, they don't have enough background, so they yeah. you know they don't they don't pursue that. Are the def are the definitions uh, consistent enough, or is there a movement to make them more consistent so that even though someone in Kansas may not know what the Colorado depot plate is, if there's a Kansas depot plate, they can safely assume that a Colorado depot plate means the same thing that a Kansas depot plate means. I wish it was that easy, but I think we found that each jurisdiction, you know, what they allow their dealers, for example, to do with their plates is so unique, you know, uh, as far as family members having the vehicle, mm -hmm. using it for personal use, towing boats. So what we really look at is, to Kevin's point, and we, we provide many jurisdictions links to their websites where they very clearly describe the type of specific use plate and mm -hmm. what the permitted uses are, and we really encourage that because who knows who's going to be needing that information right. because even road. though it might be specific eligibility within that jurisdiction there's no restrictions that that vehicle stays in that Absolutely. jurisdiction that's right now now washington state just recently passed legislation that said their transporter plates were only valid in the state of washington oh, interesting because they were having so many problems with the misuse of it outside of the state so that's you know theoretically if any law enforcement in any other states he's a washington transporter right. they know right away Something's wrong. Yeah, that's not right. valid. Yeah, right. that's right. That's interesting. Uh, do you see that as a possible trend that continues? I mean, or even, I guess in that case, what if somebody from Washington needs to transport something across to Oregon? <laughs> what, do they, what do they that's do? A, that's another side. I don't know if we ever really got the answer on that, but you're right. I mean, that what would you know there's still going to be a demand for those washington dealers or manufacturers right. to transport goods so I, i'm guessing that washington has some other way for them to transport yeah, those right. legally right but we really do stress law enforcement's education 
that our motor vehicle agencies, you know, when they do trainings, invite law enforcement, mm-hmm. invite prosecutors in to educate them all on those plates. Because just because of all the criminal activity that's behind them, yeah. and if law enforcement's not really sure, they're just going to wave the person and say, "Here's your speeding ticket. Have a nice day." We, we really, you know, we really want the officer to feel comfortable, you know, asking, "What? So where are you going? What are you doing with this yeah. plate?" Right? Because you just don't know. Now, you know, through this conversation, we've talked about all what's seemingly a uh, straightforward topic of license plates mm-hmm. touches a lot of different constituencies. I know the working group was pretty proactive in getting early feedback from some groups that maybe we don't always have at the table in the conversation and creating a, a best practice. So tell me a little bit about that stakeholder outreach, who you talked to, the kind of feedback and conversations you had before this yeah. best practice was finalized. Sure. So, you know, we got, um, you know, our traditional survey tool that you think AMBA uses. Right. A lot of the folks we wanted to hear from are not AMBA members yeah. because they're the ones that are using the plates, seeing the plates, and forcing the plates. So we did specific surveys that the working group come up with questions and we went and we we hit like uh, dealer associations and said please share this with your mm-hmm. community we hit various law enforcement associations you know sheriff's associations chiefs of police associations and said share this with your community and we did really well on the feedback and we you will see quotes in the best practice from some of the feedback you will see results of most of the the summaries of the feedback from the dealers and as you can imagine those that are using the plates, when we ask the question, you know, do you think there's a lot of fraud associated with the plates? Yeah, we didn't hear a lot of like, yes, right? <laughs> I mean, they were pretty satisfied, but we did hear some real honest responses like, you know, there should be auditing with all of the dealers that have these plates, not just don't just select a few. Um, there should be more consistency a- across the, you know, how these plates are used. So the, the, the whole issue of don't make 10 different types of plates, but just give me one right. plate was one of the responses. Law enforcement really hit on, because we asked law enforcement, have you had training, first of all, on the plates? And have you had training on what to do when you see an out-of-state or out-of-jurisdiction plate? Have you had training on what to do? And the majority of law enforcement said, no, no, we don't, we don't have any idea. So they said is give us a cheat sheet, give us some training, give us a guide. And that's why we really pushed this website, mm-hmm. uh, our jurisdictions, mm-hmm. to educate because an officer in Colorado seeing a plate from Florida, help me out here. I, I don't know. This is 2 in the morning. Um, is there a problem here with this person using the transporter plate? I mean, and if they had a way to go on the website very quickly and to say, wait a minute, this is not permissible, it, it's very helpful. So law enforcement's really push was... Um, you know, educate us, help us, give us training material, because most of them had really no idea. And from the dealer community, from our, our, our industry community, you know, for the most part, they wanted consistency, they wanted fairness. Um, you know, that was really what they were after. And, and you know, just uh, treating everybody equally. Mm-hmm. And in uh, there, there were some that, that did agree that they, these, are, these plates are misused. They, they didn't yeah. like that. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, Kevin, 90 best practices in the document. We only touched on a few of them. Uh, talk to me about some of the other thematic best practices, some of what you believe, if jurisdictions were to implement, might be some of the bigger game changers to really help help move this topic along. Yeah, of course legislation helps, right? If yeah. you can get a bill pushed through that um, you know, sets up what the regulation is for the issuance of the plate, that's great. If you have the ability to implement rules as far as the issuance of these different types of plates, um, and, and then you know the the auditing and an enforcement piece. Um, if the jurisdiction doesn't have any way to 
uh, you know, enforce the use or or enforce compliance, I guess you could say, if they're reported that the plate has been, you know, being misused, right. can the plate be canceled, right? And then that way, when law enforcement pings that plate the next time, it's going to come up as, you know, not valid or, right. or, or canceled. Um, so, you know, that, that was a big portion. I think, you know, education and, and educating the public as well. So uh, I know we've mentioned, you know, your website's got to reflect correct information but uh, you know customers will go to your website and they'll say you know what my neighbor has this dealer plate I, you know it's not fair you know is he getting that thing for free you know how can I how can I get a dealer plate so you know if they go log on and you have the explanation of what that is they're probably you know put at ease and say okay right. yeah that you know probably legitimate because he does sell cars right. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. you know training staff uh, because a lot of our motor vehicle agency staff get the phone calls from law enforcement from the dealer community transporter community and so training your staff so they're not providing you know inaccurate information or wrong information that's really the key and then you know having staff spend devote time to actually looking at the applications for these plates to, to look at the legitimacy of the applications. Those are some of the key areas. I don't know if you mentioned, Kevin, but re, you know, making sure these plates are queryable by, by law enforcement through inlets, mm -hmm. um, because many jurisdictions we found just, they don't put the plates in the system to even have oh, law enforcement even know that that plate's been issued, right? So they may not know the name of the individual who's driving the vehicle because it's in the name of, of, of Ian's auto sales. Right. But at least they know that it's a plate that's been you know issued by a jurisdiction. That Otherwise, way. they would come up and get it as un not unfound, unfound and they're right. going to law enforcement. That point has to assume it's a counterfeit plate. Maybe, yeah, exactly. And so the other thing is reporting stolen plates. Um, I know this can become a delicate issue. Uh, because you know we don't want people taken out at gunpoint because their plate comes back stolen but it's really holding those that are issued the plates accountable to say if you're missing a plate you need to report it to the motor vehicle agency you need to report it to law enforcement and law enforcement needs to report it as stolen and then please don't reissue that same sequence of plate again until you know it's been cleared but I know just from members on our working group there's a lot of political issues with that because those plates become very valuable especially the low numbered plates right become very valuable and if one's lost or missing they're going to want a replacement to match that and so yeah oh, so it's not it's not a sensitive issue to report a missing or stolen plate but the idea that i can't reuse that That's sequence the it's the it nostalgia fits. based around i was dealer number one yes. in delaware or whatever right. so they want the, the dealer one plate yeah, I remember uh, in a previous life when I worked at a state DOT, the conversations around the issuance of low number plates and whether it's, you know, is there only one number, one, two, three, four, five, or is there a one, two, three, four, five for each series of plates? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think that's it. I think low plates is probably a whole other podcast we could oh, have about yeah. the excitement over low numbers. Low numbers. And, you know, in law enforcement, the other thing is law enforcement knowing who to report these to. When they, when they see a violation in Colorado of a plate from Florida and they say this is a problem, uh, you know, having somebody in Florida that they could reach out to and report it. Because if the yeah. Florida regulators don't know that these plates are being misused outside of their jurisdiction, they're going to keep issuing them. Right. And it just continues, perpetuates itself. And so the, the, to Kevin's example of, you know, we had a, a DMV in the western part of the state and their transporter plates are being misused in New York. Well, they didn't really know about it until a customer called and complained because their plate was reported stolen. Mm. And they didn't know why that was because they bought this plate 
from a dealer or somebody online in New York, and it really was totally, you know, illegal what they were doing. But so, do we provide a you know suggested protocol or a way to contact each other? I mean, obviously, there's the concept of let the regulatory agency know, let the issuance agency know. But do we go a step further and say, you know, here's here's a good way to contact them. Here are the key contacts in this area. So we don't we don't provide the key contacts on our best practice because AMBA has our nice membership directory Indeed. that we now have. Dealer, dealer, who's are responsible for dealer licensing? We actually have a contact list now. Yes. The idea in our in our book, uh, best practice was to talk about here's examples of websites that are really, really good, and those websites provide contact information of who to contact. So you know, for our, our member folks that are not members of AMBA that can't get to our membership directory, they still have a way yeah. via email or a phone call to yeah. contact. And so we really encourage using that jurisdiction's website as a point of contact. Once in a while, I ask questions that I know the answer to. And <laughs> fill good. them right in. I love good. it. I love that's it. Good. So, Kevin, as you know, a jurisdiction member of the working group, any other key takeaways that we haven't gotten to that, you know, when you, you leave this room and this recording and you're talking to your fellow jurisdictions, you're like, oh, yeah, make sure you read page 42 of this best practice because it says. I, I think one of the big pieces is the application process and the validation of the business. Yeah. And I know we, we briefly we touched yeah, on that. Yeah. Um, you know, making sure that someone applying for a dealer plate holds a dealer license. Mm -hmm. If you have a partner agency that's involved in the dealer licensing, it, you know, checking with them, is this license still valid in order for us to issue this type of plate? Um, I think the other thing that I would say is uh, it, it's good to partner with the, the surrounding jurisdictions, right? Mm -hmm. The ones that you're bordering and maybe reaching out and saying, you know, we'd probably get more traffic than you would see out, you know, across the country. Sure. Um, is, is there some sort of, you know, seminar or webinar or something that we can put together, together to to educate, you know, law enforcement or, or you know, the MVA? And, and maybe a handout. We provided some examples of handouts that they could pre present to law enforcement or prosecutors as well. And I think for me, and I think the most important thing is that anyone listening to this podcast who has any responsibility in this area within their jurisdiction that they assign somebody to take a look at this best practice and look at, you know, what are some of those recommendations that they could, you know, there's some that are pretty easy to implement right now. Don't take any legislation, rule changes. But, you know, start using that as a way to more bolster and, and strengthen their program, uh, you know, just to, to make it a better, stronger program. That, that's what I think it's just assigning somebody that responsibility would be a great start. Great. And I'm sure if they do that and they have questions, they can reach out to you, Paul, Absolutely. and other members of the working group to get some more assistance. Absolutely. Of course. So if you're interested, it is on our website, amva.org. Download the best practice, as well as access that member directory that Paul mentioned and so many other great, great tools. Paul, Kevin, thanks for spending some time to chat with me about it. Great work by the working group. Congratulations on delivering a, a wonderful thanks. product for the members. You Thank you very much, Ian. Thanks Thank for you all us. for listening. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.